Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between, he's seen and done it all. And now he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. We don't have time for a pause this week. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, uh, hell and brimstone is happening at the Pritchard compound. Uh, <laughs> we are up against it. God does not want us to release this show, but we're going to fight through it. You know, we're trying, man, but i got tornadoes and everything going on around me. i got no internet, but that's not going to stop us. We're ready to go, man, and, and uh, we apologize if the quality is not up to snuff of what it usually is for us, but by God, we're going to get a show out there this week, come hell or high water, and I got that in the backyard. So uh, here's the situation. We had planned to cover uh, two years of Hulk Hogan's run. We just are not going to be able to do that with these conditions. Bruce is making this uh, happen right now by cell phone. Uh, that's something we've we've sworn we would never do, but it's our only option in order to get the show out this week, uh, and we're not going to be able to deliver the length you want either. We are going to circle back next week uh, and, and try to help you with a bonus show to fill in what we said we would do, uh, and we'll cover all of 88 and all of uh, 89 up through WrestleMania 5. So you've got 16 more months of Hulk Hogan coming your way. Uh, we just can't deliver it this week, guys, and, and we're sorry. We'd like to say we have a good excuse, but... Every now and again, man, weather just does not want to agree. So uh, we're going to do our very best here, and uh, we'll go ahead and get back to our regular format next week. But let's get cracking. Uh, we're going to talk about all things Hulk Hogan, brother. Uh, and I was really excited to talk about this one with you, and we're picking Hulk Hogan for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Uh, but I do want to ask, in your opinion, Bruce, you've been in the wrestling business a long time, what catapulted Hulk to the next level? You know, I, I think that it was simply 
Rocky three. He probably would have gotten to that next level anyway, but Rocky three with Sylvester Stallone is what put him on the map for everybody to see. You know, I've always been curious from someone who was in the business back then, how was Hogan being in Rocky three received by those in the business? Was it viewed as a cheap thing, something everybody was in favor for, not in favor for, obviously it was a different time. You know, I think for the most part, overall, everyone accepted it because it gave wrestling, it treated wrestling well. They they put wrestling in a good light, and they had Hulk in a favorable role there. And they didn't let the boxer, you know, beat his ass and so on and so forth. Obviously made Rocky look good in the end, but that's what we do in wrestling. And I think overall people felt that Hogan came off good and that the business came off good. When and where would do you think Hulkamania really got its start? Uh, I, I would I would think most people would, would like to think that it's most closely associated with the WWF, but really and truly, it started with Vern Gagne in the AWA, did it not? When Hulk came out of Rocky Three, man, Hulkamania was running wild. And the first time that I was ever exposed to, you know, Hulkamania. Now, I'd seen Hulk Hogan before in New York with Freddie Blassie and, and working with uh, Bob Backlund and and all that before. But Hulkamania as a baby face and really is a you know, great phenom. The first time I remember it was in the AWA with Vern Gagne. I'm curious, in your opinion, Bruce, had Vern hung on to Hogan, how do you think the business might be different today? You know, I don't know. I... I don't know if it would have been that different because I don't know that Vern would have been able to take Hulkamania to the next level the same way that Vince McMahon did. I think that it was a combination of Vince McMahon's vision and Hulk Hogan's charisma and and Hulk Hogan's vision together that catapulted it all uh, into the stratosphere. So, would Hulk have been big and would Hulk have been huge? Yes, he definitely would have. He's he's just that type of an individual and that type of a character that he would have done great. But I don't think that uh, under Vern's watch, I don't know that it would have been as big as it was under Vince's watch. Uh, when Sheik beat Backlund for the belt and then ultimately Hogan won it from Sheik in 84, was it perceived as a bit of a changing of the guard from the way Vince Sr. had always ran things to the way the Vince we know today was going to do things. Oh, yeah, definitely, man, because uh, I think that it went from the old school of having a champion that, (laughs) you know, it sounds silly in, in today's business, but having a champion that could hook you if he wanted to, to having a champion that was, in a lot of people's opinion, all show. And Hogan was, you know, that, that entertainment champion. He was larger than life. And he broke, he broke away from that mold of Bruno San Martino and Bob Backlund that Vince senior had created there in New York for so many years. And then you look at the other territories, Vern in particular, you know, Vern was the champion for a long time. You had Bockwinkle and, the NWA had Flair. They had Harley Race before that. You know, guys that could go and guys that were perceived as wrestlers. 
Hogan was perceived as a gimmick, and he was perceived as a uh, a showboat, a showman. Not necessarily a wrestler, but he drew money. So no one could predict that level of success, but when you first saw that there was a shift in the business model, did you think it would work with Hogan as being the guy, given the success he had for Vern? <sighs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. Of course I did. No, I, I think that a lot of people poked holes in, in Hogan. And when being on the other side, which I was at the time in Houston and working with Bill Watts and, and Mid-South UWF at the time, I think that people saw Hogan as a flash in the pan and that it would never last because people would see through it. And... What actually happened was people didn't see through it. They loved it, and they turned out in droves to support it and to see it. So, but initially, you know, yeah, being honest, man, right off the bat, everybody just saw doom and gloom and failure. That line of thinking was pretty common in wrestling, not just, you know, a unique perspective from Texas, the idea that, oh, he's not real, he's not you know, Luthez, he's not Harley Race, that type of mentality. So what sort of preconceived notions did you have of Hulk Hogan prior to meeting him? Well, it's just that, that, you know, I mean, obviously he was a big guy, but somebody that was was just there because of a look. He was there because of a gimmick. But I was brought up on, you know, I was brought up on Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk as the world heavyweight champion. Right. I was brought up on a wrestler's wrestler. And Hulk was not that traditional wrestler's wrestler. He was, he was charisma. He was a showman. He was a showboat. And that was something that all the old promoters, man, they, they all just brutalized him. And they talked about how, you know, he couldn't last five minutes with our champion. Our champion's a wrestling champion. And Hogan, you know, he drops a leg, couldn't crack an egg. And they took every opportunity they could get to demean Hogan as a wrestler and to demean the WWF as a promotion. What do you think the uh, historical significance to the business um you know, WrestleMania three represented that America and Americana accepted wrestling. I think overall that it allowed the average American and in the closet wrestling fan to come out of the closet and be proud to be a wrestling fan. Interesting choice of words there. Um, First time you meet Hulk, uh, of course, for those of you who have been following the show, you know that Bruce started right after WrestleMania three. So we just kind of wanted to set the stage there for a few minutes about how Hulkamania came to be. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about the first time you met Hulk in my head. That would have been late April. Do I have that right? Yeah. The first time that I ever had the opportunity to be around Hulk and actually, uh, meet him face to face was at a Worcester TV after WrestleMania it was actually the first television tapings post WrestleMania three. And Vince had brought, you know, we, we talked about this in, in, uh, gosh, several of our shows, you know, the, the Worcester mass and the Worcester spectrum, but Joel Watts and I had come in and 
we were a little sidebar. We, we were in the arena, and I'll never forget Nelson Swegler, who was the head of production for Vince at the time. And, and Nelson was kind of a uh, older gentleman, kind of curmudgeonly. And Nelson listens to this show, so that's why I say that because it kind of, you know, he's he's still curmudgeonly from what I what I'm told because he works with Court Bauer on different things, but. Uh, Nelson was in the arena with us, and he looks, turns to Joel and I, and he says, boy, wait till you guys hear this. I bet you've never heard anything like this before. And it was the entrance of Hulk Hogan. And it was a huge pop. It was a tremendous ovation. But I'll never forget Joel Watts turning to me and, and saying, well, obviously, he's never been at the Tulsa Fairgrounds and heard the Rock and Roll Express's entrance. So it was all subjective. Now, you know, later years being in, in the arenas and, and being around the WWF at that time, man, Hulk Hogan was magic. He was on fire. And when he would come out, the entire place would erupt. There was an electricity in the building that was just unmatched in the industry. So he was special. But, uh, during that taping, I remember going around and they would do pre-tapes and they would do their in- interviews for the individual markets. And they would do them in rooms around the building. And I remember walking into a room where Gene Okerlund was doing interviews with Hulk Hogan. And after the uh, – I just stood in the back and watched and he did one or two. And, and then he stopped down and he came over and introduced himself to me. And that was the first time that I met him. But I, I always found it strange that he stopped everything down to, to come over and introduce himself to me, which was uh, just a classy, nice guy thing to do. Absolutely. You know, I know we're talking about Hulk Hogan, but I feel like we've got to take a sidebar here, which is what we do. The show you're talking about was at the Centrum in Worcester, and it was April 23rd, 1987. And it's notable here that this is where you guys taped a bunch of Missy's Manor, uh, like, interview segments with randy savage elizabeth bobby heenan ken patera adrian adonis jimmy hart you know none of those ever aired though what was your Thank take god why don't you think it caught on it was horrible why was it horrible um <laughs> missy's a because they wanted missy to be a, a baby face and missy was a natural heel Missy in real life was a natural heel, and Missy on air was just a natural heel. She was more comfortable being a heel, and they were trying to turn her into a, a, a babyface uh, reporter, Katie Couric type. And it just didn't come across natural, and it, it wasn't good. I don't think that Missy's heart was in it, um, and the audience that had been exposed to her had been exposed to the heel Missy Hyatt and they weren't about to accept this this smiling um you know I love puppies and small children Missy Hyatt even though Missy Hyatt does love puppies and small children but probably puppies more than small children but um puppies and Missy Hyatt in the same sentence and we're getting out alive who'd have thought <laughs> Uh, the deal with Marvel to use the name Hulk, I've always been fascinated by this. Uh, do you know any of the terms by which Hulk was able to license the name for Marvel? 
I don't. And that was, you know, that was always kind of a bone of contention, but that was a deal that he had worked out. And I, I have absolutely no idea on the particulars of his deal with, with Marvel. That was the booking committee. Oh, come on. Now, when you're saying it was um, a bone of contention, it was a bone of contention with who? It was always a bone of contention. I think it was a bone of contention with Vince because that was something that Hulk was able to do for all those years, no matter where he went. Separate from Vince. use the name Hulk. So Vince was not involved in that deal. He may have been later years because I'm sure he had to either license it from Hulk or be involved in the Marvel deal. But obviously... Uh, that deal was with Hulk because he was able to take the name and go to WCW and everywhere else and, and still to this day. Use it, it. it feels like you're bullshitting a little bit. You don't know. No, I don't know. How, how do you not know that? that? How did that never come up is what I'm questioning, I guess. Because I had no dealings with his deal with Marvel. I never had any reason to know. Hmm. Never you're, came up. I mean, a- it's just not something I needed to know. Uh, Jerry Jarrett is credited with giving Hogan one of his first big breaks in Memphis and anointing him Hulk. You going to give him any credit for that, or are we going to hit the old, well, you know? Absolutely not. We know. So you Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock tonight. Sorry, folks. We're just, we're trying to get through this thing, and it's adverse and I'm sitting in this a is, box. This so is our third time. This is our third time trying this, and uh, we've tried it over two days. And the clock is ticking. We're out of time. <laughs> the weather does not want to cooperate. We're doing our best, guys. Go. Uh, after WrestleMania three, he worked with King Harley Race in the out in the A towns and drew huge money, uh, the big markets. And people always talk about Flair Hogan. But really, in 87, this is the next best thing, isn't it? I mean, Harley Race, Hulk Hogan, this is as close to NWA, WWF as we're going to get, right? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people, and and it's funny, Harley Race hated this term. Harley was in the twilight of his career. But Harley was on the backside of his career. And he was in the WWF, and they had anointed him the king. But... Harley Race is a heel, and as a performer, come on, man, top-notch. So, yes, to be able to have the Hulk Hogan-Harley Race matches, that that still meant something in a lot of markets. And Harley also is a heel on television, and Hogan is the top babyface. It was a natural pairing, and they liked each other, you know, despite their, their history um, throughout the years and, and Harley not liking Vince, not liking Hulk because they were invading his towns. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a hell of a program and drew great. So they were okay to work together here by then, since Harley had kind of put his guns down, so to speak, um, everything was okay. Yes. Did you ever hear Rick tell the story of Harley pulling a gun on Hulk Hogan? Back before he signed. I've heard the story. I've, I've heard it from Harley and then I've heard it. I've heard the story through the years. I don't know that I've ever heard Rick, Rick tell it, but please do so. Well, I, I saw Rick tell the story with Hogan present and they both confirmed that this is what he had heard. And then what really happened that allegedly they're coming in to run Kansas city, which is 
uh, one of Harley's towns. And when they're there, they're running one of the big arenas. The night before, Harley has someone burn the ring down. Uh, so the WWF gets another ring in there, uh, and they're still going to run the show. And they're running this show to oppose Harley, who is, he feels like they're taking money out of his pocket. So he just goes over to the building and has a gun tucked into his waistband, asks where Hogan is, finds out he's in the bathroom, and he's waiting for him. As soon as Hogan gets done taking a shit, he opens the stall door, and there's a gun right in his belly. And to hear Hogan tell the story, he says, hey, man, it's not me. It's it's him, and he starts spouting off Vince McMahon's personal <laughs> home number. Like, don't shoot me. Here's Vince's home number. Call Vince. And, and and to hear Rick and Hogan tell that story is pretty awesome. I'm sure it's out there on a podcast uh, somewhere. Um, yeah, and, and Harley kind of tells it with a chuckle in his voice <laughs> that, that, that only Harley Race can get away with. And, and you know, you talk about the kind of guy Harley Race is. My my all time favorite Hall of Fame moment is when Harley Race was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Everybody before him, they all got up and they talked about, you know, I remember this time Harley Race got in a fight with this guy and he knocked him out. I remember a time that I was in a town and Harley Race knocked this guy out. Well, finally, and I believe it was Flair inducted Harley Race, and Harley gets up to the podium he says if one more guy gets up here and talks about they were in a town and they saw harley race knock somebody out i'm gonna knock that son of a bitch out that's awesome (laughs) it just brought the house down because you could see harley sitting up there first of all dying for a cigarette Second of all, probably dying for a scotch and just going like, I don't want to hear any more for these cocksuckers out here. Fuck them all. But, uh, yeah, my favorite Hall of Fame line, Harley Race. Let's talk about what uh, Hogan did after the series of matches with Harley, which, by the way, you could see a Texas death match with Harley Race and Hulk Hogan that they booked on the return matches in one of those old original Coliseum video releases, like most unusual matches or something like that. Uh, at a June 2nd taping in Buffalo, Killer Khan sprayed green mist in Hulk Hogan's eyes on the snake pit. I don't know when we'll ever talk about Killer Khan again. Give me some Killer Khan action, Bruce. Wow, man. The, the, my one and only Killer Khan story was Joel Watts coming out of Vince's office after uh, walking in to a meeting that was taking place between Vince McMahon and Killer Khan. And Joel walking out, shaking his head. I'm like, well, what the hell's what's going on, man? He says, Jesus Christ, I thought that my dad was fucking crazy. He says, Vince is in there and Killer Khan's face calling him a fucking pussy. (laughs) Basically trying to get Khan to to either fight him or do something, but to just show some backbone. You're a fucking pussy, Con! God damn it, you're a fucking pussy! And Joel just laughing at, at Vince's remarks to this giant Mongolian man. Tell me about Green Mist. 
uh, he uses the green mist here and mist has always been something that's been in the business for a long time. You got any good green mist stories? Oh, baby, that, that's a mysterious, mysterious green mist, baby. The great Kabuki. Kabuki is the originator of the green mist in Kilakam from ancient Orient. He perfected the mist to magically appear and blind people momentarily to allow him to do something very Kabuki-ish to him and secure a victory. Uh, this angle, of course, led to a series of matches later. What the hell is a Mongolian stretcher match? It's a stretcher from Mongolia. You can get those on Amazon Prime? Yes, you can, but the shipping's extra. No, it's not supposed to be. Not with Prime. Uh, the next day, oh, okay. H- Hogan defends the title against the Macho Man. Uh, and I think this is probably the first time you would have seen these two guys work together. Do I have that right? Probably so, yeah. Um, when did you guys know you had something special with these two? I mean, this is June 3rd of 1987. This mother's day and father's day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple, too. All we needed was a a picture from our phone. Boom, we're up and running. You see, PaintYourLife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Well, I think that Vince always thought Savage was special. I don't know that anybody really saw that that babyface turn with Randy and, and him becoming that huge babyface. They always felt they had something special, obviously, with Elizabeth and everything. But Randy Savage, he was just a very unique and very special talent. So when you get two unique special talents in the ring and they click, which Hogan and Savage did, there's always in the back of your mind where you start to go, ooh, we got something here. It was like the best thing I can liken it to in, in modern time, there was a moment with Steve Austin and Sable that – Steve was coming back from the ring, and Sable had been down at the ring, and they just crossed paths for a minute, and Steve stopped for about a half a second and gave her a look, and the building erupted, and everybody looked at it. I mean, at the same time, everybody's looking at each other going, ooh, there's something there. Meaning that Sable... You know, making that switch over to Steve, we never, we never pulled that trigger, but uh, there, there was magic there, and it's just a moment when you get two talents together and they click. Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart hated each other, but man, they clicked. They were great together in the ring. Over the summer, we see Hulk Hogan work with Kamala a lot at the house shows, and he's somebody we haven't talked about a great deal here on the show. Do you have any fun? Kamala stories you can share with us because he was uh, he was working the main events a lot here in the summer of '87 with Hulk. Kamala man, he drew everywhere he went. I think the the funniest Kamala story that I had was working with uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan in Houston, Texas, and his tights ripped, and Kamala all he had on was the that uh, leopard skin skirt. Yeah. And all of Kamala's junk, the the Ugand the Ugandan warrior, was out for all to see, <laughs> and he just kept working like it was nothing, doing the the jumping, the big leg drop, and the kicks, and and that Ugandan giant, it that, it was just out there waving and say hello to everybody. Oh, yeah, it was great. But man, Kamala was a hell of a worker, man. A, a very underrated big man i'm not gonna let you just wiggle here i need you to go ahead and do an impression of kamala's penis again (laughs) paint on it had a little moon on it and a couple stars oh my gosh what we just came up with a t-shirt and i think we just got hashtag kamala's penis (laughs) trending on twitter what 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 the hell is it (laughs) with this show and penises it's your show. You don't get to ask those questions. You get to stop talking about peni. Is that the plural well, of penis? You're the one that brought it up. I didn't ask about his penis. You asked about Rick Rude's dong. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're switching gears here on me. 
Uh, let's get moving here. Hogan tagged with uh, Ken Patera quite a bit in 87, and Ken has a remarkable story. A lot of folks will remember that he had an incident in 84 at a McDonald's and ultimately wound up in prison. But somehow Vince saw an opportunity here and had him uh, use his natural darker hair color. He comes back in phenomenal shape. He's no longer bleach blind, and he's not the big nasty heel. Now he's a baby face, fresh out of prison. Uh, how do you think this worked, him as a babyface here in his return? Well, it's really all you could do based on the circumstances of Ken coming out of prison. You can't really make him a big, mean, nasty heel. But I always thought that the bleached blonde Olympian gone bad was Ken Patera's best work. Sure. Um, but here... He just felt that Kenny people people wanted wanted to help him. They wanted to root for him, and you put him with or against, I should say, Bobby Heenan, and they're going to want to root for him all that much more. So that that was the general idea behind it, and he felt that Ken Patera could be viewed as an Olympic hero and a, an American hero, if you will, that people would get behind. It kind of so, feels like um, everybody in the business was pulling for Ken and felt like he had been somewhat railroaded. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think everybody was pulling for Ken. They he, he lost a big a big chunk of his life to a prison, but you know, unfortunately, that shit happens, and it is what it is. Uh, Hogan worked a series uh, of matches for a good chunk of '87 with One Man Gang. Uh, this starts in the late summer and really continues through the end of the year. And we've talked about Akeem before. We haven't spent much time talking about the one-man gang. Uh, how did you How did you enjoy him as a performer in the WWE? How did um, Hogan enjoy working with him? Give me some memories of working with the one-man gang in 87. Well, the one-man gang was a product of... At that time, now he's not originally a product from Mid-South, but he went from Mid-South to New York. And I'd been working with, his name is George, George Gray. And I'd been working with Big George in Mid-South at the time. And he made the jump over to go to New York. And Vince loved the big, mean, nasty-looking heels. Hogan loved a, a big, nasty heel. Especially somebody that looked like the one-man gang. He could work. He could bump. He could talk. And he was easy. He was light. He didn't hurt anybody. He could do the big splash, drop the leg, do all that big man stuff, and he was light as a feather. So he was a natural for that big, mean, nasty heel to go with Hogan. And all you needed at that time, you didn't have to have an angle. You didn't have to shoot some big angle on TV. You just had to be a big, mean, nasty heel and say that you wanted to beat Hulk Hogan be put in the main event, and it drew. As, as crazy and as simple as that sounds in today's day and age, that's all you needed to do. It really Could is. Could you imagine Brock Lesnar back then? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's a lot different, for sure. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, August 29th. We're in Baltimore, Maryland, and I found this one to be interesting in my research. Hogan tags with Bruno Sammartino against King Kong Bundy and the one-man gang. 
And this would be Bruno's last match. And I don't know why, but I was kind of surprised by this. I, I thought it was odd it wasn't filmed. And just given, you know, how famously critical, like not too long after this, Bruno was of everyone from Hulk Hogan to Vince McMahon to the WWF as a company. I just found this a little odd. Do you have any memories of how this came about, uh, this match? And how were things with Bruno at this point in August of 87? Oh, boy. This was about the time. This is when all the David stuff blew up. And Tell everybody uh, what you're talking about. David San Martino is Bruno's son. And David was working for the company. There was a situation with a fan in the crowd that uh, David got in a fight with a fan in the crowd. It, it became litigious. They were letting David go. Bruno was upset, felt that the company didn't stand behind David, and so Bruno quit. Um, but it was Bruno, in my opinion, and I'm not going to speak for Bruno, but in my opinion, Bruno was doing the gig, doing the wrestling, the, the in-ring stuff, doing the color commentary, simply to help David get a job. And that's why Bruno was doing it. Ah, well, I'm sure we'll talk about Bruno more in the future. One of our most requested topics ever on the show is coming at you because it was released on September 21st, 1987. Do you have any idea what I'm going to pitch you here, Bruce? Pile driver. Look at you. You knew. Yeah. Pile driver, the wrestling album. Uh, I've read that the album was recorded in January, but I assume you were there when they shot the videos. Tell us some memories about all things pile driver. Well, it was a blast, and Joel Watts shot the majority of those uh, videos, and I shot a lot of them with him, but that was, it was a lot of fun. I got to meet and work with Rick Derringer, rock and roll, hoochie coo, you know, that guy, and um, and he actually did a remake of rock and roll hoochie coo with me and Gene Okerlund singing the vocals, and we shot the video in a church in Greenwich, Connecticut, that was absolutely, uh, I thought, one of the one of the greatest things that I ever got to be a part of, and that was a lot of Joel Watts' genius, but uh, I was a part of it and had a lot of fun doing it. The, the pile driver, the video that they shot, that they shot out on the construction site, was done out in San Francisco, and probably one of the, the hokiest, uh, 1980s <laughs> music videos ever done from Vince there in his, you know, tight red shirt and, and Hulk and in, in spandex and work boots and Arnie Skolin with the cigar in the outhouse. Um, it was absolutely terrible and magnificent all rolled into one. But they, they, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it, it was a it was a shitload of fun, and including um, doing slick. Slick's video was shot in Baltimore, Maryland, at Video One. But the stuff with him walking down the street, yeah, was shot in downtown Stamford, Connecticut. And Slick about uh, got in a fight with some people on the street, and uh, there. Some stuff was shot at a Kentucky Fried Chicken there. 
but it was just down and dirty <laughs> and uh, run and gun style <clears throat> video things. The the Martell and uh, Rick Martell and Tito Santana, girls in cars. That was shot out uh, Oxnard, California, I think it was. It was shot on the West Coast. I don't know if it's Oxnard. I know I ended up in Oxnard after that shoot, but that's a whole other story. Um, did Vince have a hand in directing any of that stuff? Was he present for all that, or did he just kind of carve it off to you and let you have fun? He carved a lot of it. He carved a lot of that off to Joel, and but he he was there obviously for the pile driver stuff. He was there for a portion of the Mean Gene Rick Derringer shoot, and that's where the the first time that I really got to see Vince and his. Uh, director craziness that I just absolutely loved. Um, well, let's hear what that. Get up in there. Get on up in there. Uh, with the camera and, and move. God damn, give me some movement. Um, where the light bulb kind of clicked with me. That makes me happy. What's that? Just, you know, I was trying to get you to pitch to it and then you just did it on your own. So television's movement. You gotta move. God damn it. Uh, the first Saturday night main event you worked with Hogan I was want legs, creamy legs. Mm. Sorry, I just flashbacks to that video. I know we're, we're that's what we're here for, bro. If you if you feel the spirit take over, just do your thing. Uh, the first Saturday night's main event you worked with Hogan was taped on September twenty third in Hershey, uh, but it aired about two weeks later on. Uh, October 3rd, Hogan defends the belt here against Sika and man, the promos for this were fun. I remember them all these years later. Uh, why Sika here? And what are your memories of that? The idea behind Saturday night's main event was to put Hogan in the ring against somebody that people could identify with as a heel because you were appealing to an audience that may not, and probably was not. Your fan on late night, Saturday night, right after your local news, this comes on. So Sika looked like a heel. Obviously, uh, Hulk, not obviously, I guess, but Hulk and Sika, longtime friends, and Sika was a great worker, Sika and off, off of both. Um, but it was somebody that looked like a heel, and that was kind of the way that they would program those Saturday night main events. Yeah. I had that in my notes here and I wanted to, um, come back to, you know, what the methodology for Hogan opponents on Saturday night main event was, for instance, uh, in March of 88, he's in Nashville against Harley race. Um, and then he's not on the April one, but he's back in October of 88 against King Haku He's off the November show, but back in January with Elizabeth against Akeem. Uh, and in March, he's back again with Liz and Bad News Brown. So it seems like there's a, a wide variety of heels for Hogan here. What was some of the methodology for the selection process as to how you guys decided who to feature against Hogan? Somebody, most times, and this is the wrong, this is the wrong word, wrong way to describe it, but almost a generic heel. But someone that wasn't necessarily in a program with 
with anybody else at the time, but someone that the general public could identify as a heel, as a bad guy, somebody I'm going to not like instantly when I see and hear them on screen. Sometimes, uh, and I believe bad news fit this profile, was it was kind of wrapping up where Hogan had already been around the loop with them. So he had already done all the house shows with bad news, so it was a match that they could do that people in the uh, local towns, they may have already seen it, but now here's, here's a way to wrap it up on, on free TV for you. But sometimes it was just a heel to work with Hogan. It's like when they would do May sweeps, same, same kind of philosophy. Um, May sweeps. One of the big deals was and Hulk Hogan will actually wrestle next week on wrestling superstars. And he would wrestle a Nikolai Bolkov or a Boris Zukov. So I know, Somebody not a, I know what you mean when you say sweeps, but a whole lot of people have no idea what you just said. So expound on that. Two month, there would be two big times during the year, May and November, that the television industry would set their advertising rates based on what they call November sweeps and May sweeps. And during this time is what advertisers looked at how television shows were performing in the ratings. So if your ratings were really good, and that's why in November and May, that's when you really got the good TV. That's when you got the season finales. You got the blow-offs. You got the special guest stars on different programs because that's when advertisers were really looking at the ratings. And that's what they set their ad rates on for the next year. So in November and May, we would always, you know, you'd always see Hulk on one of the shows because normally you didn't see Hulk on ever wrestle on the weekly syndicated shows. A staple. Maybe. Go ahead. No, maybe twice a year. That was it. A staple during this time was uh, Hogan working with someone from the Heenan family. And as we all know, that Heenan-Hogan rivalry existed on camera for well over a decade. They even did the angle uh, on TV where Hogan injured Bobby's neck, too. Um, How did they get along behind the scenes? Tremendously. Hogan was was a big, big part in bringing Bobby over from the AWA. Because Bobby obviously was working there managing Nick Bockwinkle and... Um, Hogan loved working with him, thought he was great talent and told Vince, you know, Hey, need Bobby Heenan. So that's, that's kind of how that happened, but they got along great. They were friends outside of the ring. And as you said, Hogan's always, you know, taking care of his friends and looked out for him. The Sam Houston Coliseum, October 9th, 1987. It only draws 3,700 folks. Um, it's a TV taping and I found this interesting uh ted dibiase with uh virgil of course the million dollar man defeats the world champion hulk hogan by count out when virgil shoves hogan into the ring post and eventually they're both brawling through the floor um hogan chases dibiase and virgil out of the ring and this and he does this right after virgil starts to wrap the title belt around dibiase's waist so this is the first time we start to kind of see DiBiase in this role, and we all know what was supposed to happen at WrestleMania 4, and, and we'll get to there. Uh, but on this night, you're there. 
a young Bruce Pritchard is there and he interviews Hulk Hogan and he says he wants DiBiase back in the ring, no matter what the stipulation is. And the only way DiBiase should be able to get to the title would be to beat him in the ring for it. And later in the show, you interview DiBiase and he announces that he's the uncrowned champion and he wants another shot. How did you fall into an interview role here? Why is Houston only drawing 3,700 folks for Hulk Hogan on a TV taping? I'm just kind of confused by what's going on here. Well, to be clear, as far as the TV taping goes, that was a taping just for Houston. That wasn't uh, intended to be a television taping for anything else. We did end up using a lot of that footage uh, for primetime wrestling and all-American wrestling, but it wasn't a national television taping per se, like like the what we would consider a television taping. And I guess that's not what I mean. I mean, locally they would have promoted the cameras will be rolling. Hulk Hogan wrestling the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. How the fuck is it just thirty seven hundred folks? But but the cameras rolled every time we were there. That wasn't unique. Every every show was a television tape. Why did you just draw 3,700 people with Hogan on top in a major market like Houston? Because we that was the first time that we had done it on our own, and we had moved on from the Houston Wrestling Office, which if you go back and listen to our uh, show in the archives about Houston Wrestling, we, we talk a lot about the last show that we did with the Houston Wrestling folks. This show was the first show after that Um, and we didn't we didn't have the support of that office there wasn't as much put into it frankly the paul bosch retirement show we haven't gotten to yet this you said this was in september uh this is in october i thought the paul bosch retirement show show was in august oh okay well there you go roll title now uh, October 28th in Rochester, New York, Hogan was wrestling the one man gang. This is for a TV taping and a fan <laughs> attacks the one man gang. Do you remember this? I sure do. The road ch- the, the Rochester roadblock was the fan. He was a worker. So you can tell us a story. He was a guy in the crowd who was an extra and he worked locally, independent uh, worker, and he was in the crowd, and everybody kept telling him that well, you're as big as the one-man gang. Why aren't you in the WWF? So somebody pumped him up enough that he jumped the rail, got in the ring, and decided that if he could take the one-man gang down, that we would have to give him a job. Because one man gang was wrestling Hulk Hogan. If he could beat one man gang, then he's got to get, we got to give him a job. Was Hogan at the, I mean, was, um, was Vince at this TV taping? Oh yeah. What's Vince's reaction to some jag off jumping in the ring here, trying to get a guy, trying to get a job. God, I, I have no idea. I don't even know if he saw it. Um, I happened to see it just because it was, it was the last match of the night and I would always kind of walk out. You know, watch the last match. I always used to like to watch Hogan's entrance, and then we would get the hell out of Dodge. But I remember standing out there, and all of a sudden there was this big commotion in the ring, and the guy tried to – and this guy was also an amateur wrestler. So he knew what the hell he was doing. And Gang wasn't an amateur wrestler. (laughs) 
But uh, I remember Gang just waylaying him in the back of the head when the guy tried to double leg him, and referees and agents and, and security got in there and and got him back. But he just wanted to show that he could take the one man gang down. Did you guys press charges? I don't think so. No. You know the crazy thing is, man. Probably six months to a year later, we were using him in uh, squash matches. So there you go, guys. Uh, Don't do that. (laughs) Do not jump in over the barricade and do not attack wrestlers. Bad move. You know, and especially in those days. Unless you're big and get hired. The the old school mentality was. Beat the shit out of them. There were promoters like Bill Watts that if a guy jumped into the ring and you didn't, if the guy could leave on his own accord after the fact, you didn't beat the shit out of him, you were fired. Right. Get out. You're done. Uh, one of the first times I saw Hogan tag with Macho Man uh, in my research was in a six-man with Duggan. Uh, he was on their team, and they took on King Kong Bundy, Rick Rude, and Harley Race at a house show in Vancouver on November 10th, 1987. Do you remember when and how the Mega Powers concept started to come together? Previously, the last time we saw these two guys, they were working in a match together. But now... They're on the same side here. Uh, can you kind of carry us through the mindset switch from they're not going to be opposing, they're going to be friends, because that's where you get the real heat. The, you know, the, the whole mega powers uh, colliding, that really didn't take shape until right in that area, right after WrestleMania four. So the, this was just simply an attempt to, you know, Make that move with Randy as the baby face and, you know, sprinkle Randy with Hulk dust and move, push Randy more over into that mega baby face aisle. The next uh, Saturday night's main event we see with Hogan was taped the next day on November 11th. And this time we had King Kong Bundy beating Hogan by count out. Bundy was seconded by Andre the Giant. We haven't spent much time on this show talking about King Kong Bundy. How was he to work with? Man, I always got along with him fine. He was, shit, I remember him in in Mid-South, Chris Bundy and uh, Ernie Ladd talking about, Bundy, Bundy, he's a thief. Every time you go to the check, they ought to arrest you for thievery. Um. But uh, he, he's a, he's absolutely hilarious in real life. I think he does some stand-up comedy now, but he, he's a funny, just real easy-going guy. He never really seemed to make waves. I never really heard him either for or against anything one way or another. It's like, okay, hey, boss, whatever you need. Uh, November of 1987, that's when we start seeing DiBiase really working main events against Hulk Hogan in a very consistent manner, seemingly every show. Uh, He sometimes has both Virgil and Andre with him, and a lot of times here he's actually beating Hogan by count out after Andre lands a headbutt on the floor. Um, At that point, do you think you guys were still positioning yourself for WrestleMania four to be million dollar man, Hulk Hogan. At that time, the, no, the WrestleMania four was always being positioned as Hulk Andre three. I meant with a tournament. Did you think it would be Hulk Andre and then 
that would still always, did you know right then we're going to do Hulk Andre three and then, you know, kind of throw it out. Um, and then macho man, maybe not be the, I, I guess that's what I'm trying to get a sense for, because it feels like right here, DiBiase is being groomed to be the guy. Well, DiBiase was the top heel that could work at the time, and that that's more of what it was because Andre couldn't work. Andre could only do what he could do in the ring. That's why you had to surround him with everybody at Survivor Series, and then you got to the the February deal just to get him into that match at WrestleMania. So there was a lot of just you didn't know we did not know what the hell we had with andre didn't know if he was fully healed his back hadn't been tested he had had surgery he had been on uh when let me think when it was in august of that year andre showed up on crutches and it it was a rush you know and it was a a crapshoot whether or not they were even going to get andre in the ring at survivor series but that happened, and so they, they went forward with everything. So a lot of it was wait and see. A lot of it is, is see what we got with Andre, You know, get that match in the ring. Can we... That was the attraction, I guess is what I'm trying to say, and always was the attraction. Okay, the original Survivor Series. It's November 26, 1987. I'm sure we're going to talk about it in long form here on the show. It was in Richfield, Ohio. It sold out 21,000 seats. It's head-to-head with Starcade from Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, your memories of Survivor Series and the concept. Uh, I'm sure we'll break down the card at some point in the future. But does Vince say, guys, we've got to fuck up their big pay-per-view, come up with an idea? Yeah, that's exactly what he said. No, the the idea was to do something different and come up with some kind of a theme. The the theme was first of all an elimination match so that you could protect Andre and Hogan and get uh Andre a victory over Hogan. That was kind of a, a germ and I don't know if it was Howard Finkel or, or Pat or who the hell exactly came up with the whole Survivor Series concept, but before you know it, there were teams of five that strived to survive. And every match became an an elimination match for that entire pay-per-view. So that was the germ of the idea, but the, the germ of the idea was, God, do we get, how do we get another attraction, Hulk and Andre, and then out of this, if we can get a victory for Andre. And this was the first time that uh, that the term Hogan Boss Pose um, was uttered to me. Are you really going to sit here and try to say that you guys didn't do this to fuck with Crockett and Starcade? Did I say that? No, but you, when I said, hey... They got their big show. Let's fuck with them. Let's come up with something. And you facetiously said, oh, yeah, that's what he said. But, I mean, come on. That's what he said. No, it's not what he said. It was simply, you know, he didn't want them on pay-per-view. He didn't want. He did not want them to enter that pay-per-view arena. And that was something that Vince felt. So sabotage it. That he had created. And he didn't want anybody else playing on playing in his playground. 
So he told them, hey, if you guys want WrestleMania next year, you'll take my event. And you won't take their event. So, so choose. If, if you want WrestleMania, which at that time was the draw on pay-per-view, then you'll take our event. So try to fuck with their show and sabotage it. Well, no, they were fucking with our show on pay-per-view. They were fucking with pay-per-view, trying to get on pay-per-view. That was something that he had done. Why? <laughs> Why wouldn't you just admit, yeah, fuck them, ruthless aggression. Let's cut their throat. Yeah, fuck them, ruthless aggression. Okay, there just we go. Squash them like a bug. See, that's what I, everybody knows. Baby, that's what it, watch them drop. Baby, 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 watch them drop. Stand back. Thank you. That's what we needed. Uh, let's talk about it. Hercules Hernandez. He gets a shot against Hulk Hogan at a matinee wait, wait, show. You, you just let the fucking Hogan pose thing just die there. You just going to let it sit there. We've covered it before. We're going to come back and cover survivor series in the future, but please, by all okay, means, no, if, no, fuck it. We covered it then. Fuck it. Are, are we, are you not doing this from a goddamn utility closet in your house? <laughs> Right now, and you're fucking wanting me to go off? What's wrong with you? It's the third time we've done this. With, with no goddamn air conditioning either. You have no power at your house. We're on a cell phone with a 9% battery life, and you're like, Hogan must pose. we got to talk about it again. What the fuck? <laughs> okay, when you put it like that, come on, let's move this goddamn thing along. Fuck, Hercules Hernandez, what the hell did he do? I don't remember. Uh, it was the booking committee. Thank, Next. thank you, Tony. All right, it's a mat. Here's what I wanted to talk about. It's a matinee show uh, in Pennsylvania, Erie, Pennsylvania, on December 5th. And Hogan wrestled right before intermission here, and there's been lots of debate as to why he would do that. Catch us up on the mindset of having Hogan on right before intermission as opposed to last, because there's lots of rumor and innuendo out there that Hogan wanted to do this so he could get back to the hotel and have room service. But specifically, on a matinee, that's not the case. Why would you have Hogan on an intermission? So that you could shoot whatever in-house angle that you wanted to shoot with Hogan so that you could announce, next time we're in the Baltimore arena, we will have in the main event, Hercules Hernandez will return. And he will face one-on-one in a no-disqualification match. Hulk Hogan! Tickets are now available while in the front lobby. You can purchase your tickets for next week's uh, or next next month's card right now. There's 20 minutes. You know, and so you get people there that night. They, they see the in-house angle, and then you put your tickets on sale for the next event. It's really smart because back then it's not like everybody had the internet and you could just click a button and order tickets with your thumbprint. Uh, you wanted to go ahead. The best place to let your people know, your fans know, about your next event was when they're already at the current event. And the best time to get their cash for that next return show is right then while they're at that event. They'll never be more excited about the product and what they've just seen than right then. So rather than hope they don't lose interest or get busy or miss a TV or not hear about it, you got a captive audience, get their cash right then. It's good. It's best for business. Would you agree? Oh, without a doubt. Yes. And that, that was something that, that all of the promoters, in the the territories, we, we always use that. We would try to, you know, get people at that intermission, hey, tickets are on sale right now for the next event here. Vince just did it. He would shoot the in-house angle with Hulk. And if, let's say, he was 
wrestling Hercules. If he was coming back with Hercules, they would shoot an angle in the match. If he was coming back with someone else, that person would probably be involved in the match. And a lot of times Hogan would work intermission on the matinee show and main event on the evening show so he could travel between both because he was the big draw. So you may have separate crews for the most part, but you would be able to get Hogan from one to the next simply by running him early in the matinee and late in the night show. Correct? Ding, ding, ding. Okay, so there you go. So there's lots of, you know, villainization of Hulk Hogan. I'm not sure that's a word that, you know, people do. It is now. It is now. Villainization, folks. December December 19th, we see uh, Craig DeGeorge with Hogan, and this is where he rejects the million-dollar man's offer to buy the world title. And this is obviously going to be a major storyline as we move into WrestleMania 4 moving forward. Do you remember who came up with the idea of, hey, he's the million-dollar man, just have him buy the fucking thing? Vince. Well, why not? Put that cigarette out, pal. Go listen to our Million Dollar Man episode in the archives right now if you haven't already. It's one of our more popular shows. Uh, December 11th, we see a Hogan-DiBiase match in the main event of the Houston Coliseum. Uh, And in this match, Andre trips Hogan, and Hebner sends him to the back and finds him $2,000. You were there actually doing commentary for some odd reason. Uh, with uh, Mike and Pete, your memories of this match as you open whatever wrapper you're opening right now? Trying to move shit out of the way to pick up water. Sorry. Um, I have no memory of that match, it, it, but I did commentary in Houston. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, let, let's uh, move along, Tony. I all found- the time, yeah. It's a damn booking committee, Conrad. It's a conspiracy. I know I called the fucking thing, but I don't remember it. Um, I found it odd that on December 12th in St. Louis, they only draw 4,300 with Andre and rude defeating Hogan and Orndorff in the main event. Uh, in that match, Andre is the person who gets the pin over Orndorff. Uh, but I'm curious, how did they only draw 4,300 in St. Louis with all these names in the main event? Orndorff had been a big draw. Obviously Hogan and Andre were rude was on his way up, but it seems like a really rare deal where the last match on the card you have the heels go over. I thought normally, especially in these days, you sent them home happy. Uh, well, what's, what's up I guarantee you one thing happened at the end of the night. What's that? Hogan posed. <laughs> How did I not I don't see give that a comment? fuck who went over. I guarantee you there was probably a belt shot to the head on somebody in Hogan posed. How was uh, Orndorff as a baby face, in your opinion? I thought he was good, but I thought he was much better as a heel. To me, he was just a natural, arrogant heel. No, I think everybody would agree. Uh, Since we're talking about Orndorff here, do you remember the Hulk Hogan uh, exercise kit they sold to kids and Orndorff was in the commercial? Yes. (laughs) Wasn't that weird? You going to give me anything on that? I, you know, it was before my time, but I always thought it was weird. So weird. <laughs> it was like, hey, kids, you want to be like Hulk Hogan? Then do like Paul Orndorff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it just made absolutely no sense. Uh, Chicago, this is a fun deal here. Chicago draws 12,000 folks on December 26th with Hogan defeating the one-man gang. Uh, DiBiase and Virgil interfere and actually get color on Hogan. And Bachwinkle is the special guest referee. 
Do you remember this being put together? I don't, but I mean, I remember during that time frame. Yeah, we would use different guys in different areas where where it would make sense. But and you thought Bachwinkle was, or you guys obviously thought Bachwinkle was a draw in Chicago. Yes, that's awesome. He was. Uh, the next night, Hogan uh, debuts. I'm sorry, the same day. This is where we are. Really process this. The day after Christmas, 1987, on a matinee show. They're in Chicago. Stop before you even say it. Are we in Toronto? Toledo. Oh, I'm, shit, I'm, I'm getting. I'm getting where you're going. I'll, I'll get there in just a minute. But Chicago draws 12,000 in the afternoon, and then uh, Hogan debuts for the first time ever in Toledo, Ohio, that evening. And they draw 8,200. So the day after Christmas, there's more than 20,000 people coming out to see Hulk Hogan. Uh, the next day in Landover, they draw 13,000 for a matinee with Hogan and Bigelow tagging against Bundy and Andre. That same night, they draw 17,000 in Toronto with Hogan and Bigelow taking on Bundy and DiBiase. So <laughs> this is just amazing to me to see. How fucking over Hulk Hogan was in 1987. 20,000 folks between two shows on December 26th. You think, well, shit, how can we beat that? Well, the next day they drew 30,000. That's amazing to me. Yeah. Um, Jumping in cars and hauling ass in between town. Yeah, you're going from Landover, Maryland to Toronto. I mean, (laughs) these aren't exactly, you know, they ain't on the state line. You know what I mean? Um why didn't Bigelow do more here on top in 87? It feels like at the end of 87, all of a sudden he's plopped in here. Uh, and he would have been very, very young at the time. How did Hogan feel about working with a young Scott Bigelow? They liked each other. I think they, they both liked the Iranian tobacco and they liked each other. And that, you know, Scott was a big agile guy. I don't know the Vince saw him as a baby face. Vince just looked at him and thought this, this guy, people are going to love and he's a baby face, but Bigelow didn't like being a baby face. He felt more natural as a heel and he always had that mean rugged look and it just was a disconnect. And then we, you bring in Oliver Humperdinck again, a guy who his entire career has been a nasty heel manager and make him Bam Bam Bigelow's babyface manager. I just, I just never got the package. I, I didn't, I didn't get it. I don't think that the audience got it. Um, but you know they tried. And the deal here is, uh, you know, Bundy works the matinee with Andre, and he worked Bundy works the evening show with DiBiase. Andre just couldn't work two shows in the same night in late '87, right? No. Um, I've always been fascinated by this Bigelow thing though. Just put this in perspective. This dude's 26 right here. So really process that. If you're 26 years old right now, imagine you're in the main event, 30,000 people, you're tagging with Hulk Hogan and across from you is Andre, DiBiase or Bundy or combination of that. That's a big damn deal. And Andre hates you. Come here, bam, bam. Fuck you. Boom. Because he's a big guy. Because he's a big guy. I just didn't like him. That's amazing. Andre didn't need a reason not to like you. Uh, it's worth mentioning Hogan's uh, last. Can I tell an Andre story? Yep. Okay. Andre and Uncle Elmer. I don't. Stop me if I told this one before, folks. Uh, Uncle Elmer. 
goes to Bobby Heenan one day and he says, Bobby, how come the giant don't like me? And Bobby says, well, gosh, Elmer, well, Andre likes you. I mean, what, what, what makes you, what makes you think that uh, Andre doesn't like you? He told me so. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was funny to me. I don't like you. Get away. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Hogan's last match of 1987 was against Butch Reed in Hamilton, Ontario. Guess how many tickets were sold? 796,204. Now, that's going to be the... Uh, Attendance that WrestleMania is reported to be by the WWE on the broadcast. Was that close? 18,000. It's just, it's just amazing. I mean, this is not on TV. You know, it's not a pay-per-view. That and, wasn't it, and, it wasn't a, and it wasn't a big angle either. It's Butch it Reed a, like, and Hulk Hogan. It just was a match. That's what I mean. Butch Reed could, I'm not disparaging Butch Reed. He, he was a working motherfucker. I get it. However, it's Butch Reed. It's Hulk Hogan, 18,000 tickets. That's how hot the no WWF issue. was. That's how hot Hulk Hogan was. Exactly like you said, no issue. It's not like, you know, Butch Reed sprayed green mist at him on the snake pit. This is just cold. Uh, you know, outstanding. What a way to finish uh, the year that Hulk Hogan had in 1987, and what a way to finish our show. Now I realize we've just gone just a little over an hour so far, and you're probably thinking, what the hell? Uh, we're used well, to a lot more than that. Well, we're also used to Bruce being able to do this without doing it from survival <laughs> rations. Uh, he, he's on a battery backup. His, he's, he's running his house on a generator. Uh, he doesn't have internet. He doesn't have. So we've tried this last night. We tried that this morning. We tried it today at lunch. As it is right now, this is our last possible chance to do it or no show this week. So we thought, hey, man, fuck it. Something's better than nothing. Am I right, Bruce? Uh, yes, and it's funny because when you think of it. Yes, folks, we did all those things. Thank you for bearing with us. We apologize, that, but we uh, we will more than make it up to you. I promise you that. Uh, enjoy WrestleMania weekend. Stay tuned. We will follow up with an announcement for when you can catch the duration of this Hogan show, part two. And I've always said I hate doing part two, so we won't call it part two. We'll call it 88. Uh, when's Hogan 88 coming? Soon. We'll see you soon, brother. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.